Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's Paracel podcast, Beyond the Binary, Navigating Gender Diversity in Clinical Research. And I will be your host. I'm Rosamond Round, Vice President of Patient Engagement, and my pronouns are she, her. So today we'll be discussing the important topic of gender identity and inclusion in clinical trials. We'll focus for you on the knowns, the unknowns, and also provide some recommendations. It's particularly important at the moment because there's been an increase in the number of people identifying as trans or non-binary, and there's often a lack of understanding both within the broader community, but within the medical community too, along with some kind of very vague regulatory guidance at present. It can make this area feel a bit unclear for us. So to provide some clarity, we've undertaken a very thorough literature review and also undertook a patient advisory council meeting where we spoke to members of the community and we brought all of this information together. It's just been published in Contemporary Clinical Trials and there's also a report available on Paracel's corporate website. So with that, let's introduce today's guest and dive in. Leah, would you like to go first? Sure, thank you. I'm Liam Pascal. I am a transgender man. My pronouns are he and him. I'm also a senior consultant of management development here at ParXL and a transgender inclusion speaker, trainer, and consultant. What I do is try to encourage individuals and organizations to become better allies, active allies, and advocates for transgender rights, inclusion, and belonging. Wonderful. Thank you, Liam. Amy? Yes, my name's Amy McKee. My pronouns are she, her. I'm the chief medical officer at Parkcell, and I'm also the parent of a transgender child. Wonderful. Thank you both. So thinking about the report, as I mentioned before, we went and found all of the literature that we possibly could in this area and did a very thorough literature review. And what we found was prior to the last two to three years, there was actually very little available unless it was related to HIV or AIDS care for people from the trans and non-binary community, which I thought was quite interesting. So it's obviously a new area, it's an evolving area, and there are still some gaps. So we wanted to look at kind of the medical, the scientific. We also looked at the practical perspective. So what could we do to support these patients more when they come into the clinic or when they're learning about research and the care that they'll receive and also the ethical and the safety perspective as well so we need to think about the importance of inclusivity but also balance that with safety when there are some unknowns so through the literature review and coupled with the patient advisory council meeting or a focus group you might call it with some of these patients we were really able to go in depth and learn about personal experiences and fears or concerns or positive experiences and how can we do more of the good stuff and fix some of the things that weren't so good so what I will do is now hand over and ask some questions to our guests today. So Amy, as our Chief Medical Officer, can you describe the current landscape of gender diversity in clinical research or perhaps the lack thereof? So the bottom line is we know that transgender and non-binary people are not included in clinical trials at the same rate of their representation within the population. But we also don't know the full extent to which they're not included, in part because we actually don't record this properly in most clinical trials. We don't have the right boxes for people to check to indicate whether or not they're transgender or non-binary. So for that reason, we don't know the full extent of the problem. And the other point I'll make is, just briefly, there's also some great trepidation, and for good reason, for transgender and non-binary people to participate in clinical trials, in part because of the stereotypes and misunderstandings and lack of good care that they receive already. And so the desire to participate in clinical trials may be less than for a person who is not transgender and non-binary. And that's something that we definitely heard in the discussions that we were having. And 
people that were perhaps still going through the transition said as well that maybe they were going to so many medical appointments already. There was so much going on that adding on to that with during a clinical trial as well, unless it was critical to them or perhaps really helping the rest of the community, that maybe it would be one thing too many to embark on. Liam, any thoughts on that from the discussions that we've had? So going back to what Amy said about those those checkboxes, right? If we're not being asked about gender identity, we're not going to typically tell you that we're trans or we're non-binary. So there may be a lot more people actually taking part in clinical trials from our community, but because those boxes are not there, we're not offering that information. I think there's a lot of stigmatism and marginalization around the trans and non-binary communities in terms of accessing healthcare and participating in clinical research. There's a lot of research being done through cisgender lens, focuses on the cisgender population. And, you know, there's a lot of limited understanding of really what our unique healthcare needs are and the lived experiences that we have, because we are very different from individual to individual. The other thing I would say is this traditional study structure, right? These templates that we're using for protocols, for informed consent forms, all the data that's being collected is really done through that cisgender lens. So we're failing to address the specific needs and the demographics of our community. We talk about something called SOGI or S-O-G-I, sexual orientation and gender identity data. That's very rarely collected at all as it's not included. And so typically we are not going to offer up that information if we're not being asked because we look at it as a very exclusive opportunity. So we don't feel like we belong. And the other thing that we heard as well is that there will be people that are from the trans and non-binary community in research and actually we're doing them a disservice if we're not collecting the information because there may be differences in how they respond to treatment that aren't captured. So by ignoring the problem, we're not actually helping ourselves or the community. Another point perhaps, Liam, that would be useful, maybe not all of our listeners know some of the terminology that we're talking about. Maybe they're not sure what cisgender is or transgender or non-binary. Perhaps you could just give us a rundown of a few of those key terms so that we can make sure we're educating our listeners and bringing them along with us in today's discussion. Sure. So sex assigned at birth, we haven't really mentioned yet, but I mean, that is literally male or female, the sex that you're given when you are born, right? For me, I'm a transgender man. There are also transgender women. And that means that our gender identity or our understanding of ourselves, our psychological understanding of who we are, does not necessarily match the sex assigned at birth, you know, how we were born. Cisgender is meaning your sex assigned at birth and your gender identity are absolutely aligned, right? Your gender identity is absolutely what you were when your sex was assigned at birth. A lot of people do often take offense to the term cisgender. They feel like sometimes they're being targeted or they're being made fun of or they consider it a very derogatory term. It is not. It is just a way to differentiate between cisgender, transgender, and non-binary or gender non-conforming. And can you explain what transgender is, please? As in how that differs from non-binary? Yes, absolutely. So for me, as a transgender man, I have always, even from the age of maybe four or five years old, felt like I should be a boy. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it, right? And I think when I talk about myself as a transgender man or you talk to a transgender woman, that is exactly it. I feel I live Everything about me is masculine or more like a man, whereas transgender women, even though they were assigned male at birth, are more like women. They want to live as women. They identify as a woman. And we are considered men and women in every sense of the word. In terms of non-binary, those are individuals who either may identify as both man and woman or neither. 
the spectrum is is very very wide so that particular gender identity could could fluctuate right it changes at times so non-binary means not really identifying with male female man or woman it's somewhere in the middle or somewhere along that spectrum brilliant thank you very much i'm sure people will find that very helpful thank you so why have transgender and non-binary people been nearly accounted for in clinical research do you think liam So I think medical research has often focused on cisgender populations, and that has really limited our understanding of the unique healthcare needs and experiences of trans and non-binary people. I mean, we don't know what we don't know, right? And there are several reasons for, I think, this disparity. So we've been stigmatized and marginalized. That continues to happen. And of course, that leads to a lot of barriers in accessing healthcare and research opportunities. I think that the research studies typically categorize participants in these binary gender categories. So male or female, and that's it, right? Based on sex assigned at birth. And so that excludes transgender and non-binary individuals, or it leads to misrepresentation. And I think this lack of really accurate data sort of hinders our understanding of health disparities in our community and specific healthcare needs within the trans community. I think Roz mentioned early on the number of trans and non-binary adults in the population, nearly half of us experience mistreatment or discrimination with a health provider. I myself have experienced quite a bit of that. And for trans people of color, that number is even higher. We talked a little bit about the traditional study structure, the templates that are used for protocols, the informed consent documents, the data that we actually collect is all done through a cisgender lens. So we're really missing out on the specific needs and the demographics of the trans and non-binary community. We're not collecting that SOGI data, that sexual orientation and gender identity data. So again, we don't know what we don't know. And the other thing I would say is that many of us in the trans and non-binary community feel like we often have to educate or teach doctors about trans people to really receive the appropriate care that we need. And that at times becomes embarrassing, frustrating, and it leads us to not really want to participate in clinical trials because we just become so drained from having to do that. And other than that, Roz, I would say just the fear of discrimination and the lack of trust. There's a lack of trust in, you know, how the research is going to be used. Is our information going to be kept private? We may not be out in every location. Maybe we're out at work, but not at home. Maybe we're living in a situation where the people that we live with, we don't want them to know for safety reasons. So lots of reasons why I think it's just been basically unaccounted for in clinical research. It sounds like there's a real lack of health equity for the community. I know through some of the research that we looked at as we were preparing for this, we saw that there were other issues as well. So, for example, you kind of mentioned the lack of trust. When we were having our patient advisory council meeting, one of the members said that they were in an accident and they were more scared about how the staff were going to treat them on a personal level than they were about the injury that they had, which was really scary. And some of the research that we looked at beforehand, we saw that there is a really high degree of number of patients that have experienced kind of inappropriate curiosity from healthcare staff, maybe if they haven't interacted with trans and non-binary people in a work setting before. And so I can really see how this will kind of compound the issue. Perhaps along within those countries where you have to pay for healthcare, I know that there are differences in the degree of people that are covered by healthcare through work in the trans and non-binary community compared to other communities. And so I guess if you don't have access to healthcare, then that can make the problem even more challenging. Yeah, a lot of the community is either uninsured or underinsured, unemployed or underemployed. And I think we're starting to see a lot more of that even now. Mm -hmm. I would also add from the medical perspective, there is definitely a lack of education 
and knowledge among medical community at various levels. And this can play very specifically into clinical trials, depending on where a person may be in their transition, what medications they may be taking. There's First of all, some lack of understanding and knowledge about dosing for hormonal therapy and whether or not that could interact with whatever study drug is under study in a clinical trial, as well as perhaps hesitation from medical staff for wanting to engage with any extra complications where they will have to do more research to understand whether or not to include a patient in a trial if they're transgender or non-binary. So I think these are other barriers, too, for transgender and non-binary people to enter clinical trials from the medical staff that's staffing trials. Mm -hmm. And I guess there's the legal perspective as well from the sponsor side. If there are unknowns, then for them, that's probably an additional concern because obviously nobody wants to put any patients at harm. And when we spoke to the Patient Advisory Council meeting participants and we said, what's most important to you? Is it safety or is it inclusion? Everybody said they were both equally important to them, that they would want to know the knowns and unknowns and the safety risks, but they would want to be aware of them so they could make a decision rather than being automatically excluded. But in a litigious society that we live in today, from a pharmaceutical company perspective, I can see that they may not all be willing to take the risk. Although, encouragingly, as we've been out talking about this work that we've been doing, we have had a number of pharma companies contact us and ask us to learn more and look at their protocols. And we have protocol guidelines in place that we can leverage to make sure that we're doing a better version of inclusion. When we first started on this road, someone said to me, but we can't include patients from those community because the protocol only says male or female and I'm like we're writing the protocols just because that's what it's always said doesn't mean that that's what it has to say forever so I think it's a growth mindset for people as well raising the awareness providing the training being patient and bringing people along maybe where they haven't come into contact with members of the community or thought about it in their daily role. So there's lots of work to do in lots of different areas, but certainly within our organisation, when we've been having these discussions almost exclusively, everyone's been really positive and they've wanted to learn and they kind of said they almost didn't know what they didn't know. And now they do, they want to do better, which is very, very encouraging indeed. Anything else that anybody wanted to share about anything that we brought up or that was kind of considered within the work that we were doing? Maybe, Amy, on the regulatory side, any more that you wanted to say in terms of where we are now? So I come from an FDA background. I spent over a decade at the FDA. And and you were correct when you said earlier that often drug development gets pushed in certain directions by the regulatory authorities. The most recent guidance from FDA on sex and gender specifically noted that they were not addressing transgender or non-binary people within that guidance. And so whether that means that they will address that at a later date or never means that we don't have specific guidance from FDA on inclusion of transgender non-binary patients in clinical trials at this point in time. So we're in a bit of a holding pattern with guidance from FDA and other regulatory authorities at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. So a big thing for us, and I can't believe I did bring it up to begin with, is is site infrastructure, right? And what I mean by that is we like to know that there are gender neutral or all gender restrooms and showers, for example. Something that has really been on our minds, and I, I know I'm saying our and my because I am a part of the community, but something that weighs heavily on us right now is finding these types of 
gender neutral or all gender facilities, at medical facilities, at sites, anywhere we go. Because now in some places, if you go to a public restroom and you go in the restroom that aligns with your sex assigned at birth and not your gender identity, you can actually be arrested and put in jail. I will just tell you from my own experience in being out in public, going to medical facilities and such, if I'm in a location where there are no gender neutral or all gender restrooms and I go into a men's restroom, it is a very, very scary event for me. I literally stand at the door of the restroom for what seems like forever. I feel like I'm going to have a panic attack. And I pray that nobody's in there. And if I go in and anybody is in there, I really just you know make a quick trip to the stall, shut the door immediately. And then I think, are they listening to me? Does it sound different when I'm using the restroom versus when a sex assigned at birth male is in the restroom? Are my feet turned a specific way? Are they watching me? And when I get up and I open the door, is someone going to be standing there to bully or harass me or perhaps harm me. So this is really important. And the other thing I would say is just making sure that all of the site staff have a very good understanding of the uniqueness of every single trans and non-binary person. You cannot blanket approach or one size fits all trans people because we choose to transition differently. You can transition legally, socially, medically, a combination of those or none of those. And all of us have our own lived experiences. And all too often, what we're finding is that medical providers often forget this and they see a trans person or a non-binary person and they just, oh, they're all alike. We all paint them with the same brush. So I want to make sure that uh, that's something that we keep top of mind as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I know you mentioned the restrooms before, Liam, and thank you for sharing that personal story with us. One of the Stonewall reports that I was looking at stated that an incredibly high proportion of people from the community regularly suffer with UTIs because of that very issue about fear about using the restroom. So it is causing real issues. So from a site perspective, that's a relatively simple thing in most instances, having those gender neutral restrooms that could make a difference. What about some of the other recommendations that we had? I know when we've had discussions here, we've talked about the intake forms, we've talked about a separate room for having the ICF. Can you share a bit more about those? Something that's very simple, but people find it really hard to grasp is the use of appropriate pronouns and someone's chosen name. So one thing that you can do, all of the site staff can do, is introduce yourselves with your own name and your pronouns and then ask the person, you know, what is what is your chosen name? A lot of people's names, they haven't legally changed yet. They may not legally change them. So it may differ. Their chosen name may differ from what you see on their government-issued ID or their medical insurance. And when you are using incorrect pronouns to refer to someone because maybe you make assumptions, which we should never do, it can be very hurtful, even when it's unintentional. And oftentimes that will create what we call gender dysphoria, where we really start to question who we are. And if we look male enough or female enough, it can really create a lot of anxiety and stress for those of us in the community. So you just have to get comfortable being uncomfortable doing something that you haven't really ever done before. Pronouns are normal, right? You just have to get used to introducing yourself with the pronouns and, of course, using those for the participants as well. And the other thing I would say is, Roz, just effective site staff training. And it can't be one and done. It has to be foundational and then ongoing. Things change very, very rapidly when it comes to the trans and non-binary communities. And we need to make sure that every member of the site staff, from the first person that speaks with that individual, is properly trained. Mm -hmm. Training is important. When we know better, we can do better. 
I was just going to say we at Paracel, a perfect example is our early phase units, how we can improve those sites and train the staff there for exactly these purposes and having these facilities. I think we also need to think about it in a broader conversation. You know, Roz, you mentioned that some of our clients have actually started asking about this. I think we need to have these open conversations with our clients and with our medical colleagues. And we also need to make sure that we can provide this conversational space between the community and industry, because otherwise, how is industry going to help itself in this perspective if we can't help provide that conversation starter. But I also think, you know, as a doctor, I certainly never had this kind of training in medical school. And I know that recently in my own city, there was some controversy around a medical school that did provide that training because they were affiliated with a particular religion that was not open to those kind of training conversations. And it received a lot of bad press and that medical school is no longer providing that training. So I think it behooves us to try to provide that open conversation in particular when we know that not all doctors are going to come out with this kind of training. Mm -hmm. And Amy, why do you think this topic is so important right now? I think for me in particular, I'm going to take this to a personal point of view. I'm the parent of a transgender child and I need to make sure that, first of all, to Liam's point, they need to have the appropriate medical care at all times. But we also need to understand for transgender non-binary communities, we need to have them included in clinical research, just as we need to have a wide diversity of all patients included in clinical research, because otherwise we won't know how that medication or new therapy will be handled by a transgender patient if they are prescribed it later once it's approved. So The reason behind clinical trial diversity in general is to make sure that we have the appropriate representation of all patients so that we understand how a new therapy will work for all patients and what the risks of that new therapy is for all patients. And so this is just bringing along another community, another group of patients into clinical trials for this reason and making sure that we have that representation and know that we have that representation because we have asked the patients both their gender and and sex identity. And I think we see year on year that there's an increase in the number of people identifying as trans or non-binary. So And particularly in the younger patient or, you know, general population, I think in the under 35s, the numbers are rising more rapidly in those slightly older. So I think we as an industry where I guess many of the people making decisions are perhaps older and don't have as much experience with the community, we need to make sure that we're staying in touch with what's going on in the world so that we're evolving at the same rate as the world is. I think that's really important too. So... Final question for everybody before we finish today, and then we'll go to final comments. What can we as an industry do to ensure studies are more gender inclusive? Is there anything that we haven't mentioned already that we want to highlight today? I think I'm going to speak from a personal point of view here as well. I think when it comes to clinical research as well as healthcare in general, the focus has to be on compassionate care rather than curiosity. One of the things that that happens in my community all too often, I hear horror stories is when we go to a doctor, a new doctor, for example, and we're asked questions that have nothing to do with the care that we need. And they're intrusive questions. They're embarrassing questions. And I think compassionate care 
prioritizes the well-being and dignity of trans people, all people, and makes sure that we receive respectful, sensitive, comprehensive healthcare services, where it allows us to, or sort of encourages us to participate in clinical trials. We're going to so many doctor's appointments every, what, once a quarter, once every three months, I am literally getting blood work done, meeting with my endocrinologist, my hematologist. And it's it's one of those things where we, if we just could get people to understand and care enough to want to learn, that's really all we want. If they have that desire to learn and do better, I think we'll start to see a lot of positive changes, not only in healthcare, but in clinical research as well. Mm-hmm. Amy, anything to add? So, I, Roz, I think the point you made about keeping up with changes in society, you know, society has become more open. And as you pointed out, more people are identifying as transgender and non-binary. I think we need to keep up with that from the medical perspective. And I hesitate to keep bringing it back to a medical conversation, but it is a medical conversation. We need to make sure that we understand how to take care of these patients and how to include them in clinical trials. It's about understanding. It's about getting down to the nitty gritty of, am I using the right dose? Am I monitoring appropriately? You know, those kind of medical questions are incredibly important as we have more patients who are identifying as transgender and and non-binary. And so they absolutely have to be included in clinical trials. They absolutely have to be included in receiving good medical care. There's no excuse for not doing that. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And in the journal article that's just been published, we highlight kind of differences in dosing that might need to occur during different stages of someone's transition and if there are any differences thereafter as well. So whilst there is more research coming out in this area, there is a baseline that people can look to and that protocol design is so critical and also the way that our systems are configured and how we capture data to make sure that to the point at the beginning that there is a box to tick and so that we are capturing it. We're very data-driven industry, the more data we have, the better job that we can do too. So I think thinking about the legal piece, the practical things that we can do at site, the medical and scientific, and also the ethical sides, we've covered a lot in a fairly short conversation today. It's not a simple topic. Um, I don't think we've come here with every single answer to everything today, but we are very clear on where we are, where some of those gaps are, and some areas for improvement to improve make sure that we're being as inclusive as possible for these patients and that they are able to have really what they deserve, which is the access to the same care as everybody else. Any final thoughts or comments before we close today? Amy, you first. I think what you brought up about both safety and access is key. We have to be able to provide both at the same time. That's my final message. Thank you. Liam, anything from you? Yeah, I I agree with everything Amy and Roz have said so far, and I would take it a step further and just say, you know, societal norms have really caused us to think that it's just male, female, man, woman. And we really need to broaden our way of thinking and become thought leaders in the space where we understand that people's gender identity may differ from their sex assigned at birth. And that's okay. That's who they are. It's not a choice. And we just need to make sure that we are respecting these individuals, using their pronouns, using their chosen names, and giving them the compassionate care they deserve. I think if we do that and we do all the things that we've talked about during this session today, we'll start to see a lot more people participating from our community in clinical trials. And maybe at some point we'll be able to say, well, now we know a lot more than we did before. Wouldn't that just be wonderful? Thank you both so much. I appreciate your time and your expertise and your thoughtfulness. And thank you very much, everyone, for listening in. 